Good morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Jude. Before we get started today, I wanted to formally thank uh, everybody for their prayers. I have communicated that I was um, completing my seminary studies, and last night the Lord was pleased to formally have a graduation ceremony and um, uh, blessed me and the ministry with um, a degree that uh, was only achieved by God's grace. So thank you for your prayers, and God is faithful even when we are not, that is for sure. The title of today's sermon is Not Even the Gates of Hell, kind of a counterpart to She Shall Prevail, if you remember our sermon on contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. This is kind of a counterpart uh, to that sermon, Not Even the Gates of Hell. We're going to be looking at Through 13. Condemning actions, condemning comparisons, condemning analogies. Now that you have your Bibles open and you're at verse 10, read along with me. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Let us go to our sovereign Lord and ask his help as we begin to unpack this portion of his word. Father in heaven, we ask for your help. We ask that by the Holy Spirit you would teach us all things, that you would help me, Lord, as I unpack this word for us out of the epistle of Jude. Let us hear the warning along with the comfort that attends it. And we ask that you would help us and do all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our hope. It's in his name we pray, and we all say, Amen. I deliver this introduction with a heavy heart. We're all very familiar with the tragedy, I'm sure, that took place in Uvalde, Texas, the unspeakable evil that occurred there. But last Sunday, there was more evil that was on display. You may have heard of the 288-page report that was released by the Southern Baptist Convention revealing appalling details about sexual abuse and cover-ups stretching all the way back to the year 2000. A record spanning about two decades of men in leadership in the church and teaching positions in the church abusing the flock of God and those who gathered with them. 
The report, which is available to the public, is unthinkable. Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which must be distinguished from the Southern Baptist Convention, he said the report is horrifying and stirs up righteous anger, something we just recently learned about, and an immense measure of a broken heart. He goes on to say this, quote, It's a moment for sackcloth and ashes. That's where we have to start. Then he says this, which is important, brothers and sisters. The gospel of Christ makes clear that this is not where the story can end. But we're going to be wearing sackcloth for some time to come. Anybody who wants to learn more about this, you can go to his briefing on his Monday episode. He covered this uh, story. He also wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal. So if anybody wants to hear Albert Moeller further unpack this uh, very sad event, I would point you there. But these are two questions that are asked concerning this. Number one, how did those churches with those men in leadership get to that point? Question number one. Question number two, what is the way forward? These are the questions that are being asked by the whole country, if not the whole world, certainly the Southern Baptist Convention. How did the church get to this point, and what is the way forward? Well, our study this morning in Jude reminds us that the type of wolves outlined in this sexual abuse report are sadly not new. Be assured, though, they will not, they will not succeed in destroying the church. For Christ is the one building the church. And even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hence the title of this sermon, Not Even the Gates of Hell. Well, if that is a very heavy introduction, let us now read what God has prepared for us providentially this morning in light of this news that was released last Sunday. I want to begin in section number one. I entitled it, Condemning Actions. Verse 10, Condemning Actions. You can judge a tree by its fruit. Condemning actions. Read with me. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Well, first let us remind ourselves who these men are according to Jude. Who are these men when he says, but these men revile the things which they do not understand? Who are these men? Well, first, in verse 4, we learned a lot about these men, right, in the first century. These are the men who have crept in unnoticed. Crept in where? Crept into the church. Unnoticed. These are the men, also in verse 4, that reminds us they were long beforehand marked out, predestined for this condemnation. That's what we discussed, this being marked out beforehand, was pointing to God's decree that he had predestined these false teachers. And they're marked out long beforehand, from before the foundation of the world. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 9? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, listen, prepared for destruction? Yes, our sovereign God is in control of all things. Do not think that what has happened in Texas, what has happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, was not ordained by our Father. That there are elements in this world that are outside of his control. May it never be. In fact, it is that truth that, brothers and sisters, gives us comfort in the midst of all of these terrible things. But Jude continues to describe these men. These are ungodly persons, he says. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Again, who are these men? Men in the church who are ungodly. Think about that. Men in the church, teachers in the church, men in leadership in the church who are ungodly persons. Who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. What is licentiousness? Well... 
It's outrageous conduct. It's conduct that is shocking to public decency. Again, brothers and sisters, when we read reports of the atrocities that happen in the world, we're shocked. How much more when we read about them that are happening in the church? That's what these men were doing in the first century. Listen to what Plato said. Law is the God of wise men. Licentiousness is the God of fools. The common grace that is given to those even outside the church can understand the dichotomy between the wise and the fools. The wise have a God of law. The fools have a God of licentiousness. They become a law unto themselves. One definition calls licentiousness, listen, a throwing off of sexual restraints. Lewd character or behavior. Again, I just want you to get a picture in your mind that even in the first century, these were men in the church. Very possibly ordained men. But Jude continues to describe them. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're Weeds sown among the wheat. Who sowed those weeds? Satan. Verse 8 then goes on to tell us that also by their dreaming they defile the flesh. Again, I think pointing directly to this licentiousness that they practice. This throwing off of sexual restraint, this lewd character. Paul told Timothy that these are men that take advantage of widows in the church. We also learn that these are men who reject authority. Is that a surprise? And they revile glories, or as our translation says, angelic majesties, verse 8. But here we also have a transitional statement when Jude says, but these men revile the things which they do not understand. Now we know who these men are in the context of Jude. But it's a transitionary statement as well that is dependent upon what came previous in verse 9. But these men is contrasted with our Lord who debated with the devil over the Mosaic law. Remember that was in verse 9? Very fitting for men who reject authority and revile lawlessness. But why? How could these men do these things? How could these false prophets who have dreams and visions who they say are from the Lord, who become a law unto themselves, who are taking advantage of the flock and seeking to destroy it, how could they get to this point? How could these false prophets in the church fall so far? Jude tells us. They revile the things which they do not understand. These false teachers, although claiming to be men of God, are actually men of the flesh. And that is why they are ignorant of the things received by the Spirit. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is a good, a good description of these men in the church, teachers. But they're natural men who do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And ultimately, they're foolishness to them. Paul goes on to encourage us. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. That's the one who has the Holy Spirit. Not the weeds that are sown amongst the wheat, but the wheat. They appraise all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This reminds us of why Jude would say in the beginning uh, sentences of this epistle, For I know that you know all things. Or 1 John, where he says that we have no need that we need a teacher, for we have a teacher inside us, the Holy Spirit teaching us. We have the mind of Christ. Where do we have the mind of Christ? Where do we have it? Is it in visions 
and dreams, where do we have the mind of Christ? It's in the scriptures. For I wanted to encourage you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in the written word. So these men are natural men who reject the things of the Spirit and cannot understand them. That's a part of how they have fallen so far. And the authority which they should be under, the Word of God, instead of submitting to it, what do they do? They despise it. They despise it. They despise authority. Judah said all along these men have, who have crept in despise authority. Would we expect anything less from men who are described as denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ? But again, brothers and sisters, what is alarming is that these are not just men in the church. These are not just those sitting in the pews as laymen who are in the background, keeping to themselves, in their mind, having all these thoughts that are unclean and unpure. Now these are men and teachers in the church. Men in leadership. That should give us pause. It gave, it gave us pause last week. But Jude continues. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals... By these things, they are destroyed. Jude is now contrasting that which they do not know, the things of the Spirit, which the things they actually do know. By instinct. In other words, Jude is comparing that which they are spiritually ignorant of because of their spiritual blindness through their hardness of hearts with what they know from nature. And in this case, fallen human nature. Not the nature that Adam was created in the beginning. Holy and perfect. But rather those things which we now know as fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And he even compares it with the animal kingdom. Listen to Second Peter chapter 2 as our parallel text as we've been going through Jude. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Again, their destruction is sure. But how much destruction can they do in the church before their destruction comes at the judgment? The NET Bible Notes says this, Jude's focus is somewhat different from Peter's. Peter argued that like irrational animals who are born to be caught and killed, these men will be destroyed when destroying others. Jude, however, does not mention the destruction of animals, just that these false teachers will be destroyed for mimicking them. So instead of following God, instead of displaying godliness in the congregation, and teaching that which comes from the Spirit, the Word of God, what do these false teachers do? They teach their own private revelations. They are ungodly men who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness, sexual perversion. Again, the illustration for this is clear in our own day. I gave it to you from this SBC report. This is happening in the church today. Certainly it's happening in the world today, but it's happening in the church as well. And when we think about, again, the story that this is coupled with, with that shooting in Texas, if you even begin to listen to the details concerning that, some of the commentary you hear is like, this person was like an animal. Unthinkable evil. That's what Judas is trying to stir us up, stir us to uh, understand about these teachers, that they're un like unreasoning animals. When Jude delivered this letter, those in the congregation who received it, remember we said before, would first be appalled. What? These are men among us? 
not only men, these, these are teachers among us? Paul prophesied that they would come in the book of Acts. Men from your own number will rise among you, savage wolves seeking to destroy the flock. Again, the voice in Scripture is unanimous. This is not something just that Jude was saying. This is something that the Scriptures were saying. This is one of the reasons why I think Jude was written after 2 Peter is because in 2 Peter, Peter says these men will come. And again, Jude says these men are here. So that is section one where we understand the condemning actions, that you can judge a tree by its fruit. But now I want to move on to section number two, condemning comparisons, looking at verse 11. Condemning comparisons. Not only can you judge a tree by its fruit, but you can judge a tree by its Old Testament forerunners. And this is what Jude seeks to give us and the church by way of condemning comparisons. Read with me. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. One of the things that we said in our introduction to this epistle was that Jude is speaking to an audience that is well aware of the Old Testament. He continually uses Old Testament Examples, and here we have three more. Providentially, the Lord has designed for us in our Old Testament readings before we meet to read about Balaam. I want you to understand something. Although we see the mercy of God shown forth in Balaam in the fact that he would not curse the people of God, Balaam, the name Balaam, certainly in Jewish tradition, would not stir up thoughts of comfort. Balaam is an evil person in the Old Testament. Just like the words Cain would evoke. Same emotions that the words, the troop of Korah, who, remember, was swallowed up by the earth and brought down to Sheol in body and soul. So the name of Balaam would evoke similar emotions. Listen to what 2 Peter again says as a counterfoil to what we're reading here in this verse. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revile in the daytime. Think about this. Have you read these verses this way, thinking about these are teachers in the church who count it a pleasure to revile what? Authority? The word of God? The apostles? They count it a pleasure to revile to revel in the daytime. Remember what Jesus said? To do your work while it is still day, for night is coming. These men who should be about doing God's business as workers in his field, sowing the word of God and watering it with the scriptures through much prayer and love, instead are destroying the church in the day. Yes, our Lord said truly to work for his glory during the day, for night is coming, brothers and sisters, where no man can work. Peter goes on, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. See? This is Balaam. Loved the wages of unrighteousness. Money. It's the root of all sorts of evil. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Here again in this verse, Jude gives us three more illustrations. He's fond of using three 
throughout this letter. Remember in verse 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Or verse 5 through 7, he gave those three Old Testament illustrations. Lawless Israel, the lawless angelic host, and the lawless sodomites. Or in verse 8, he gave three lawless characteristics of these false teachers. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and revile glories or angelic majesties. And now he gives us three more. That these false teachers have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Yes, go through the epistle of Jude and find how many times he uses uh, triplets to make his point. It's rather interesting. It's a great rhetorical device. It makes it memorable. Dare I say, memorizable. And now Jude is giving us three more Old Testament illustrations. This time by way of comparison. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Here's what I want you to notice first. How this goes from bad to worse. This is what Paul said to Timothy, that these evil men go from bad to worse. Well, so does this illustration go from bad to worse. It goes from way to error to rebellion. This reminds me of Psalm 1, where the blessed man, the Lord Jesus Christ, does not walk in the counsel of the wickedness, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And then the psalmist goes on to say, the wicked are not so. The wicked do walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked do stand in the path of sinners. And the wicked do sit in the seat of scoffers. Do you see this downward spiral, walking, standing, sitting? One of motion to one of standing still to one of sitting. This illustrates a downward spiral. And I believe the Holy Spirit's word choice here of the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the rebellion of Korah, does the same. It's a downward spiral that these men are on. But of these specific examples, one commentator says this, Cain and Balaam in the Old Testament and in Jewish tradition both had become symbolic for leaders of wickedness. So let's look at these three examples briefly. The way of Cain. Who is Cain? We know Cain well from the Old Testament, from the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. We learn of Cain who hated his brother Abel. And what did he do to his brother Abel? Children, what did he do to his brother Abel? He killed him. Hebrews 11.4 tells us this, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Well, Abel, in a sense, is still speaking in this verse, although it's through his brother Cain who killed him. Here's the takeaway from the way of Cain as it concerns these false teachers in the church. How are they like Cain? I believe one takeaway is that these false teachers have a jealousy which leads to murder. A jealousy which leads to murder. The way of Cain, in other words, is a greed of attention that leads to death. Remember 1 John chapter 3, verse 12? Do not be like Cain, John said, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Why did that upset Cain so much? Because Cain received favor from God. God even encouraged Cain, do better and it will go well with you. Almost sounds like the fifth commandment. You will live long in the land. But instead, Cain did not do better. And he killed his brother and he was cast out. So it is with these men who hate their brothers and sisters in the church and will be cast out. Some of them, before they are brought to judgment, and why John would say, so they have went out from us to show they were never truly of us. 
But there is an application for us here. This isn't just teachers in the church. But there's an application for all of us who are sitting here. What is it? What is the source of the anger and the jealousy and the quarrels and the conflicts among you? The brother of James, I'm sorry, the brother of Jude, James, tells us. Is it not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members? Listen to this language that James uses. You lust and do not have. Is it just these false teachers who are engaged in spiritual adultery? That's every one of us, brothers and sisters, who lust over the things that we do not have in our hearts because of idolatry. So you commit murder. This is James chapter 4, if you're taking notes and want to look back later. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. How often I see this in my own home, in my own children. We're all fallen sons of Adam and fallen daughters. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures, much like these false teachers. And then what does James say? You adulteresses. You see, there is sexual immorality of a spiritual sense that takes place with us all. It doesn't have to just be physical. That's the way of Cain. But it gets worse because these men are also exposed to the error of Balaam. Next, Jude pronounces a curse on these New Testament false prophets by saying they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who in the Gospels pronounced woes on the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Woe to you, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is pronouncing a woe on these false teachers through the word. He's continuing to pronounce woes and curses on those who seek to destroy the church. These are not dead words. These are living words. Living words of the one true and living God. Even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who speaks in this word. He is the one who is pronouncing this woe. Not just Jude. Another commentator again reminds us of who Balaam was. And we know from our Old Testament readings in the morning that Balaam was a wicked prophet in the Bible and is noteworthy because although he was a wicked prophet, he was not actually a false prophet like these men. That is, Balaam did hear from God. These false prophets by their dreams in the church haven't heard from God. And God did give him some true prophecies to speak, didn't he? However, Balaam's heart was not right with God. And eventually he showed his true colors by betraying Israel and leading them astray. That is what I believe is the error of Balaam. Leading the church astray. Listen to Deuteronomy 23, 34, in addition to the Numbers, chapter 22 through 31 passages. Think of Deuteronomy 23, where the Lord says to the congregation of Israel, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. Remember, the Israelites were seeking refuge, seeking water, seeking just safe passage through these lands. And these nations said no. Because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Even in Revelation chapter 2, we have Balaam being used as an illustration by our Lord Jesus Christ as he's writing to one of the seven churches. Jesus says this to John to give to one of these churches. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. 
who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Again, all of this illustrates the error of Balaam. It's putting a stumbling block in the church. That's what these false prophets are doing. So what's the takeaway for the error of Balaam? These false teachers rush headlong into that error of Balaam by putting a stumbling block before those in the church, often motivated by their love of money and jealous for power. Utter destruction is the result of their fleshly appetites, a destruction that is fitting of a rebellion against God and his ways. And that's exactly what Jude brings us to next. Rebellion. And uses that by the rebellion of Korah as an illustration. Korah revolted against the God-ordained leadership of Moses and Aaron. These false prophets in the church are rebelling against the God-ordained leadership in the church of the apostles in their day. And in our day, men who are in positions of leadership and teaching positions, who are feeding on the flock, have revolted against God's leadership, the apostolic doctrine and the word of God that reigns in the church. Such rebellion began from the error of Cain, being jealous, desiring acceptance, prestige, honor, leading to the error of Balaam because of a love of money, putting a stumbling block in front of those in the church, ultimately ending in outright rebellion against God, illustrated by the troop of Korah, who rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Vivid illustrations and pinpoint accuracy by, the, by Jude, who uses them to warn the church then and now of false teachers in the church. Such riches hidden in God's word in one simple verse. But we move on from, from that... Um, Condemning illustration to condemning analogies. Again, you can judge a tree by its fruit. Verses 12 to 13. Read with me. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It's almost as if Jude is so animated by writing about these men and so righteously angered by the fact that they're there that he couldn't restrain himself to just three analogies. He gives a plethora of analogies. Second Peter, as a parallel text, says, They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never ceases from sin enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They are accursed children. We can do a whole sermon series on each one of these analogies, but just in brief, the first one is that they're hidden reefs in your love feast, calling to that imagery of a nautical sailor trying to steer his ship away from those reefs. We learned in our providential readings in the book of Acts about the ship that was uh, damaged by those reefs. And the Apostle Paul and all who were on board found themselves upon a sinking ship. Well, here Jude is saying that these men are like those reefs that destroyed that ship. And let everybody in the waves and the waters, fearing for their own lives, these men are likened unto these hidden reefs. You can't see them. Without a discerning eye, that is. When they feast with you without fear. Why without fear? Because they don't fear the Lord. 
The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And they don't fear the Lord. They revile the Lord. They do not take reproof from his word or correction from those in the church. And they, they believe they will never be found out. Caring for themselves. But they're also like clouds without water. In an agrarian culture, clouds with no water was a bad thing. Why? Because you needed your plants to grow, did you not? You needed to eat. They didn't have Trader Joe's and Vaughn's and Ralph's or wherever you go. Maybe something more akin to a farmer's market. But if you didn't have rain, you didn't have food. Reminds me of Isaiah that says, The word of the Lord is like the rain and the snow that comes down out of heaven and nourishes the ground and brings forth food. His word does not return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. These men are the opposite. They're clouds without water. There is no word of God coming out of their mouth, at least not in sincerity. And they're carried along by winds. The word of God tells us that those who are unstable in the church are blown, blown around by every wind and wave of doctrine. So are these men. Because there's nothing stable beneath their feet. They have not built their house upon the rock of Jesus Christ. They've built their house upon the sand, which moves and shifts. But they're not just hidden reefs. They're not just clouds without water. They're autumn trees without fruit. Autumn is the time when the fruit should have already come. But not even in autumn is there fruit. Again, pictures of Christ cursing the fig tree, which represented Israel. He comes to the, the fig tree. And what did he want? He wanted fruit, but there was no fruit. And what did he say to that fig tree? Cursed are you. You shall never bear fruit again. A prophetic picture of geopolitical Israel, who will never bear fruit again but rather spiritual Israel, who is now the fruit-bearing one. Even Philemon in our lessons taught us that. But these men are autumn trees without fruit. Doubly dead. Doubly dead. Remember 1 John? There is a sin that leads to death. What was that? It was the sin of rejecting the gospel. Hebrew says it very similarly. For if someone rejects the gospel, there is no longer a sacrifice by which they can be saved. If you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no other avenue of salvation. You're doubly dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins because you have Adam's sin, and you're dead in him. But now you're doubly dead because not only are you dead because of your federal headship in Adam, but you're doubly dead because you're rejecting the gospel, which could take you out of the covenant of works and put you into the covenant of grace. So it is with these men, doubly dead, uprooted, not like Psalm 1, which says the, the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of living water. No, these are uprooted trees. Jude can't stop. They're like wild waves of the sea. The sea was a picture of upheaval and chaos and destruction, a fearful place. That's why in the book of Revelation, in symbolic terms, it says on the new earth, there will no longer be any sea. Not because literally there will be no more water or even no more ocean, but as the symbolic nature of what the sea represented. It represented chaos. It represented danger. Well, these men are wild waves of the sea. What is Jude saying? When you think of that sea of chaos and that sea of destruction, I want you to think of these false teachers as being waves on that sea. What a picture. Casting up their own shame like foam. They're like wandering stars. What's so bad about a wandering star? In fact, what is a wandering star? In the old world, what was a wandering star? It was actually a planet. Because you go up and you look at the stars each night, and they're always in the same place, aren't they? But the ancients recognized, hey, there's some stars that move. There are some stars that have an, that have an orbit, and we can chart them. 
You know what you wouldn't want to do with a wandering star? You wouldn't want to sail your ship according to it. You wouldn't want to look up at that wandering star each night and say, I'm going to follow that star because that star is moving. That star is not fixed. That star is not firm and planted and a ready guide. So are these false teachers. They're not fixed and planted in the word of God. And they're like wandering stars. And if you follow them, you will be led astray. These illustrations evoke so much imagery and yet again pinpoint accuracy on revealing these false teachers. These false teachers are for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So what's the takeaway? These false teachers are supposed to be ready guides for the lost, shepherds of the flock, steady and consistent beacons of truth, pointing to the way of Christ by putting the needs of others above themselves. Servants. But these false teachers are the exact opposite. Instead, they feed on the sheep. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. What a disgusting picture. Shepherds who are to feed and protect the flock instead are themselves feeding on the flock. Disgusting. So, in conclusion, or getting to the conclusion, what we know about these false teachers in the church then and now. They are men in leadership positions, teaching positions that are not there because of their love of Christ and his church. They rather want attention, acceptance, like Cain, prestige, money, like Balaam, power, Brothers and sisters, again, do you see the importance of the qualification of elders and deacons? This is why Pastor Perkins and I were so desirous of sharing with you what are the qualifications of a deacon, of an elder. The qualifications of these men, if they were rightly held and sincerely held, would protect the church from such wolves. Because sinners love darkness and those especially who do not belong to Christ run to darkness, much like a moth is attracted to light. There are wolves in sheep's clothing in the church today, and we must remain vigilant and sober to that threat. Men like this abuse the church and are stains upon the church. And sadly, the damage caused by these wolves affords even more opportunity for those outside the church to mock the church. But that pales in comparison to the damage that is done to those in the church and those who gather with the church. Again, if you listen to the testimony of any of those who came forward in this report that was released last Sunday, the damage caused is unthinkable. What we must know about Christ and the church then, and what we must do. Remember, we asked the question, how could this happen in the church? And what must we now do? We must glorify Christ by trusting in him. We must glorify Christ by not neglecting his word. We must glorify Christ by not neglecting prayer, brothers and sisters. We must glorify Christ by not neglecting church discipline. So often the church today neglects not only church discipline, but church membership. God has ordered his church and the government of his church for a purpose. Do you see it? We must glorify Christ by not being influenced by our culture. We must glorify Christ by not being deterred in the preaching of the gospel. The gospel and Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, is the one who protects us, brothers and sisters, from such threats in the church. 
He is the one who is guarding the church and building the church. He is the one who has ultimately cursed these false teachers who have crept into the church. And he's the same Christ and Lord who will give comfort to all those who have been hurt in the church as a result of such evil and wickedness. In the light of the difficult providence of God mentioned in our introduction concerning those wolves released by the Southern Baptist Convention last week, prophesied and predicted by the Holy Spirit long ago and even today. I want to end with a quote from Albert Moeller. Jesus Christ will be glorified in his church. And if at times that takes the humbling of his church, humanly speaking, to bring glory to him, we must learn in moments like these how it is that we can bring greater glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by trusting him. It's by studying his word. It's by praying. It's by repentance. And most of all, it's by love. First to God and then to one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, who is above all things, who has made all things, and who all things were made for. We thank you that we have such a warrior king protecting our church today, that he's given us his word and not left us in the dark so that we could be prepared wearing the full armor of God each and every day. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given men to the church to guide and to protect and to lead, to shepherd and to love and to serve your flock. Lord, we ask now that you would send even more men into the harvest, for it is plentiful, but the workers are few. May the men who gather with your people, who are weeds sown into the wheat, be cast out. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a God who leads us by our hand because you love us and has proven that love by laying his, your own life down, Lord Jesus, for the church. Give us that same sacrificial love in our families, in the church, and in this world where there is much darkness. Thank you, Lord for this word this morning, which I pray stirs us all up to those tasks by your spirit, for your glory, and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we ask and pray. Amen.